Today we turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 through 20. We again welcome those visiting with us as we are going through this book of Matthew together. Hear now the Word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Kids, do you know C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, all those wonderful books? Well, he was born 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. He had a wonderful early childhood, maybe like some of you kids. He had a brother, Warney, he loved. He loved to have games, and their imaginations were really intense, and you can imagine that with the books he wrote, right? Well, his happy childhood came to an end when his mom died at age nine. His dad then sent he and his brother off to boarding school. The man there, the headmaster, was later certified as insane. He began a long phase of atheism later on. Fast forward many years, September 1931, he's in his 30s. He's wrestling with the claims of Jesus, and he says one day it happened. He was driving to the zoo. When he set out, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. When he reached the zoo, he said, he did. Yet, he said, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. It was more like a man when, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. God had shown in his heart by the Holy Spirit to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He was converted to Christianity while riding in the sidecar of his brother Warney's motorbike. Today we look at what Kevin DeYoung says is one of the most foundational questions we will ever ask. What gives you the foundation for your life? For many people, is it, am I happy? Am I good? Am I trying hard enough? Am I sincere? Am I true to my inner self? But DeYoung says Christianity is different. The question foundationally is, who do you say that Jesus is? 
For about a year now in the Gospels, the disciples have been listening to Jesus, seeing miracles, seeing him raise people from the dead. Now the question comes to them and to us today, who do you say that Jesus is? And what difference does that make, not just in your heart individually, but in the family of God that we are a part of together here at the church? First, Peter's confession of faith. Matthew 16 is a turning point in the gospel. Jesus is moving toward his death on the cross. They are in Caesarea Philippi, Christ and the disciples, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, at the foot of Mount Hermon, a beautiful place. There's waterfalls. It's a place one person says you would retire to or go on vacation. Hundreds of years earlier, Israel had worshipped the Baals, in this place. It was a part of the region Augustus Caesar gave to Herod the Great. Herod's dead, now his son Philip has it. Philip names it after Herod, Caesar, or I'm sorry, after Caesar Augustus, Caesar, and himself, Philippi, so Caesarea Philippi. There's a marble temple to honor Caesar as Lord. Animism, human achievement, Relativism is the religion of the day, and it's everywhere in that place. And it is there in that city that Jesus asks the question to his disciples, what's the word on the street? If it's asked today, what's the buzz on social media? Who are people saying that Jesus is? A lot of people don't like questions, but they're a way to get at the heart aren't they? God asked Adam after the fall, where are you spiritually? God asks us in his word, where are you today with the Lord? Who do you say Jesus is? The number one answer on the streets, Herod had been circulating it, Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. It's like Elvis is back. There's a sighting. What's going on? We it's a comeback. He's here again. Or how about Elijah? Some people say John the Baptist was Elijah. He wasn't, not reincarnate. But maybe he's Elijah, that prophet who never died, who the Jews from Malachi 4 said would come back, who appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, he's not John. He's not Elijah. How about the weeping prophet? Jesus is a man of sorrows, right? John the Baptist, Elijah. How about Jeremiah, that man who shed tears over the city of Jerusalem? Or Isaiah or Amos? All of those answers, loved ones, are wrong. It's as though they were saying, okay, we want something bigger and better than Jesus. We want a king who will take back the city, who will bring back the days of glory, who will toss the Romans out of here. That's who we want. False ideas of Christ then, false ideas today. If you ask someone on the street, they'll say, well, Jesus, good prophet, good moral example, good teacher, a man of peace, not the Messiah. Thomas Jefferson, a Bible was taken by him, and he ripped out everything supernatural about it. And as one pastor says, that Bible goes to our congressmen and women every time they're appointed. Ben Franklin, Jesus is not God. Ben Franklin was an Arian. 
C.S. Lewis, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Who do you say that I am? Jesus says it in verse 15 to all of the disciples in the plural. And look who steps up to respond. Peter, the spokesman of the group, the guy that probably had the mouth that talked too much. Maybe that's you, maybe that's someone else in your family, maybe it's me. (laughs) Peter makes a confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Kids, you have made, many of you, profession of faith. Mom and Dad, confessing Christ as your Savior. Christ, the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is divine, eternal, equal in power and glory with God the Father. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Do you notice that in his question, Jesus answered it for the disciples? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? That comes right out of Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, the heavenly being who descends from the presence of the Ancient of Days. He is truly God and truly man. He is the Christ of God. He is the only Savior of sinners. This is the most clear revelation of who Jesus is up to this point in the Bible. Peter re-echoes what God the Father had declared at Jesus' baptism. The voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And the Holy Spirit came and anointed him. Jesus is the Christ. That's what Christ means, anointed. That's not his last name, kids, right? Messiah, chosen by the Father, anointed by the Spirit, the one in whom the kingly office, the priestly office, the prophetic office of the Old Testament would converge in one person from David's line. Prophets like Moses, priests like Aaron who were anointed with oil, kings like David anointed by Samuel, Zadok anointed by Solomon, Elisha who anointed Jehu. The anointing of the oil is a symbol of the spiritual calling. The king is the anointed one set apart for God's service. That's why we read and sang Psalm 2 today. The Lord and his anointed. David wrote that psalm. It's about David in his time, but it's ultimately about great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. Emmaus wrote, in the name of the church, we want you to see Jesus. We want and pray that your hearts would burn within you as Christ has proclaimed, as you cry out to him, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He is the final prophet, the ultimate priest, God's final king. We confessed it in the Heidelberg Catechism today. He's greater than Moses, Aaron, and David. Nobody thought, after Peter said that, verse 20, that Jesus would tell him to be quiet. Do you notice that? Interesting. That's a strange verse. Why is that? Well, probably because it's a year before the cross, and if Peter made that statement. All sorts of people could come and misunderstand and misfollow Jesus for different and wrong reasons. So that's probably why that's there. But the question comes to us personally again. Who do you believe Jesus is? What you confess about Christ is everything. Doctrine alone doesn't save. 
The demons believed that he was God, but they didn't have trust. But you cannot be saved apart from true doctrine. Sproul says, your answer to the question of what is your view of Christ, what do you honestly believe, will determine your eternal destiny. There's no greater question we will ever face. Kids, who do you say Jesus is? Not your parents, not the church, but you personally. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the Savior of your sin? Do you receive and trust him alone by faith as he's offered to you in the gospel? Do you believe he died and rose from the dead? Do you believe that he is God in the flesh? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're a Christian, it's not because of anything you have done. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, nor to you and I. There's no natural process by which you rationally just say, I am going to figure this out and I'm going to be a Christian if I want to be. No human can make you believe it. No matter how eloquent they might be, no matter how sound they might be, biblically, they can't do it. Only God. The Father in heaven reveals the Son. The Father, by the Spirit, opens blind eyes sovereignly. A divine and supernatural light came into Peter's heart and into the heart of everyone who believes. God is at work in Peter's life. He is at work in your life, Christian, as you trust him. In the lives of your kids as you pray that they will never know a day when they don't love and know and trust Jesus. If you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? Because you confess Christ? Yes. Because God opened your eyes? Yes. But even below and foundationally beyond that, because you are a gift. The Father gave you to the Son. You are among the inheritance of nations, a worldwide church, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Secondly, we see what Jesus' promise is for that church. So in light of who Christ is, the Son of the living God, what is the purpose for his coming? That's a really important question Eric Alexander asks. Why did Jesus come? Do you know that the Bible gives a few different answers to that? He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. And here, verse 18, what do we see? Why did Jesus come, kids? To build his church. The church is not plan B. This is God's plan as those who are called out of darkness, the church, into his marvelous light, beginning all the way in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are the first members of the first church. The promise of the covenant of grace that God will send a Savior to crush Satan's head. The church grows, progresses from Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, to the families of these people, to the nation of Israel, to now the mystical body of Christ. Not just among believing Israel, but from all the Gentile nations. 
Jesus says here to the disciples, I've called you out of the world, and Emmaus Road, he's called you out of the world to live for his glory, to submit to him as king, to live by every word that comes out of his mouth. He is the bread of life. His word is true. It nourishes our souls. To love and worship and obey and please him. The church is not existing for our personal preferences. That's so important, loved ones. But for Christ's honor and glory. Not just one denomination, but a company of God's redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. An assembly of the Lord. When we assemble to worship God, heaven breaks through upon earth. Hebrews 2 Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. That's an astounding verse. Meaning, you are his brothers. He is your elder brother. And when we are here and gathered, Jesus leads our praise. Christ is the conductor of our psalms and hymns and songs. That just blows your mind, doesn't it? When you are standing, it's as if you are standing sharing your hymn book here with Jesus. You are raising your voice with Jesus' voice. As your great high priest, he is leading us into the very presence of God. The church is the assembly of God to worship him. Called out by God, built by Jesus. How does he build his church? He tells us in a few verses. He goes to die on the cross as our substitute for our sins in our place. He goes to rise from the dead. He brings about a new creation. And he builds a church that will last into eternity. Every one of his elect will be there. You read the book of Acts. 3,000 are converted. Is that because the apostles were such good-looking, winsome orators? God did it. Yes, he uses means, his word, prayer. But God adds to the church. We labor. We are servants. God gives the growth. From two people in the Garden of Eden to a multitude no one can number at the end of Revelation, God is building his church. He is calling and justifying and sanctifying and one day will glorify his people. Jesus will present you and all of his people before his Father in glory. That's what all of history is about. One day there will be no more politics, no more war. The whole world will see the glory of Jesus in the people he has saved. It's the work of God through history, drawing a people to himself to worship the triune God, and the gates of hell are raging against it. What's wrong with this world? Maybe you came in today with that thought. Most of us probably are taking in too much news. We're probably going there too much. Maybe not. The world has fallen. It's groaning. It's evil and wicked. It is our Father's world. He is sovereign. But things are twisted and confused. The nation, Psalm 2 says, are raging. Who are they raging against? You might say, well, look at the politics. Look at what's happening. 
Yeah, but I'm not asking that. I'm asking who are they raging against? Well, if we had my guy in there, they wouldn't be. No, I'm not asking that. Yes, politics matter. Yes, it's important. But foundationally, what does Psalm 2 say? They're raging against God, against Christ. They're revolting in hostility. It's what Genesis 3.15 said. They're refusing to submit to Christ's authority. The gates of hell. We are not wrestling alone against flesh and blood. Yes, it is in this real world, but it is much more evil than that. Behind the evil of wars and terrorist attacks and the politics that is so evil all around us is the evil one. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Satan prowls like a roaring lion. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to do it through outward persecution. More Christians died in the 1900s for putting their trust in Jesus than in the previous 1,800 years combined. He wants to destroy the church through suffering, through the burdens and the afflictions that you face, the trials, the hardships of life. He wants to wear us down so much that our love for each other will grow cold, that we will turn on and against each other. Internal conflict. One pastor says, I have seen good churches destroyed by Satan the evil one and crumble because they took their eyes off Jesus. They forgot what they were here for. They lost their identity as the church of Christ. Divided churches. I asked one man this week, what is the biggest issue he's seeing in churches? He's 78. He has lived and seen all sorts of churches around. What's the biggest thing he's seeing that is harming the church? He says division. Hardened hearts. No humility. No repentance. Grudges. Cold shoulders. Slander. Complaining. Griping. Satan is at work, loved ones, in these things. Here's what one man's devotional, he just wrote it, says about this. The intentional worship of God is the highest calling and the most wonderful thing we are called to do. And it is a location for spiritual war. The war is fought today on the ground of our hearts as we gather. The war was fought in your home before you came. It's fought when mom and dad go after each other, when kids hit each other with hockey sticks. It's fought when we come complaining about the clothes we're wearing. It's fought... When we come, this author says, thinking about the girl he wants to talk to as a teenager more than worshiping God. It's fought when we're dealing with financial pressures and our thoughts are racing and not thinking about God. When we're dealing with marriage strife and we're angry with our spouse and we're looking around and thinking all these other marriages are great, it's fought there. It's fought as we come so physically hurting and suffering and emotionally in pain that we are not thinking at all about Jesus. It's fought when our job has gotten us down, when we're grieving a miscarriage, when we have a child who is not walking with the Lord, and we're just thinking about all those things and not thinking about Christ, when we're disillusioned with church 
and pastors and elders and deacons in each other. It's fought there. It's fought in our self-righteousness and cynicism. It's fought in thinking that God doesn't love me, that I've sinned too much this week, that I can't possibly come to worship. Satan wants to destroy the church and all those things. And in many ways, he's very effective in all that. The gates of hell are strong gates. I had not seen this until this pastor pointed it out in his work this week. Judges 16. Do you remember Samson going to Gaza? That should think, oh, Gaza. Hmm. Judges 16. He saw a prostitute. Samson is here, they were told. They surrounded the place. They set an ambush. Let's wait until morning. We'll kill him. But what did Samson do at midnight? Judges 16. He took hold of the doors of the gate of the city. And the two posts, he pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders. He carried them to the top of the hill in front of Hebron. Hebron's almost 40 miles away, kids. He took the gates of the city and carried them. Gaza is one of the chief cities of the Philistines. He will die there at the end of Judges 16. In that day in Israel, Gaza is a picture of the gates of hell. He pulls up the bar, the gates, that are designed to withstand an army, and all of them don't touch him. Would you go after him? If he just pulled up the gates, would you kind of start to punch him? Or pull your arrows out? He just killed a thousand men with a jawbone, Judges 15. What's he going to do with the gates? You no, know, you back up. You, you say, well, take the gates. We're not touching you or the gates. This pastor says that's an illustration of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16. The gates of hell are strong gates, but they cannot stand against the work Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus will preserve and build his church. He is the divine warrior. He has suffered the hell we deserve in the place of all of his people. He's plucked up the gates. He was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He has triumphed over sin and Satan and death and hell. He has plundered the strong man's house. The victory of Christ and his church is assured. But we're not yet in glory. But Jesus will build his church in front of the gates of hell, in difficult places, in enemy territory. The nations rage. They rebel against God. It's like throwing a snowball at the sun. It's crazy. It's like an ant trying to squash an elephant. God is unperturbed. He replies to the raging of the nations by sending his son. If your heart is weighed down today and weary, hear this. Your God reigns. He is sitting sovereign in heaven. We have the peace of Christ that guards our hearts. Your life is not at the whim of an unforeseen circumstance. We don't need to fear. Your life is held in the sovereign, eternal, gracious decree of Almighty God, who is our blessed Father in Jesus. The Lord is your helper. What can man do to you? Be encouraged, Emmaus. Jesus promised for his church. What about the position of Peter? Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. 
Do you see that in verse 18? A lot of debate on this. Peter is not the first pope. The idea of a pope is not in the Bible. Christ is the head of the church. There's no vicar of Christ on earth. There's no one who speaks from the throne on earth. So who is this speaking of? Is Jesus referring with the rock to his father, to himself, to his teaching, to Peter's confession, to Peter himself? We could spend hours on this. You might say, yes, maybe all of them. Well, there's godly, biblical commentators and pastors that have different views on this. Peter's confession is a rock-like confession, yes. Christ is the head and the cornerstone of the church, yes. He's the king, the foundation, the builder. On that note, please never refer to any church as pastor so-and-so's church. We, we know what people mean sometimes. They say, well, I go to Pastor DeYoung's church. Well, please don't say that. It's not the pastor's church. It's not the elder's church. It's Christ's church. Christ is the foundation, but I think he's referring to here, Jesus is, Peter is the rock in this sense. Peter makes the confession of Christ. Peter and the other apostles are the foundation on which the church would be built. Ephesians 2, 20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. I think that's what's going on here. What's the foundation of the church that the apostles and prophets give us? The Word of God. There's a story that R.C. Sproul tells of a pastor who is fearful that a church building was about to be destroyed by an earthquake. He goes, he finds out not a pane of glass was broken. It's great. But two weeks later, they find that the building is unsafe because the earthquake had shifted the foundation of the building. So too in our day, the greatest attack on the church is against the trustworthiness of Scripture, the inerrancy and infallibility and authority and sufficiency and inspiration of the Word of God. That foundation was laid by the apostles. Christ is the cornerstone. These apostles, loved ones, Revelation 21, their names are written in the foundation of the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Jesus is speaking of this and reminding us Emmaus Road, we are bound together like living stones, united by faith to Christ, being made into a temple that cannot be destroyed. So as you look around, as you think about spiritual growth, our question today is not, I just want my own growth, but how can I be a blessing to those around me? Listening, praying, discipling, loving. Where love does not reign, there is no edification in the church, but a scattering. God, bind us together in love in Christ, even as we go through these days of uncertainty about the building and where we will be. God knows, God cares, God takes care, and God preserves. The Christ-confessing church, the power of the keys. Another debated text, verse 19, the keys of the kingdom. What's this talking about? Well, we'll get into this more in Matthew 18. The popular culture has led to endless jokes about this. Standing at Peter's gate, have you heard people joking like that? 
certain popes at one point before the Reformation, there were three rival popes. They condemned each other and their followers so that everyone in Europe at one point was condemned to hell by one of those popes. Horrible, tyrannical, churchly abuse based on this passage has happened. False teaching, they excommunicated Luther. That's not what this is saying. Remember Samson, gates, cities, bars? Well, a key opens and shuts. It binds and it loosens. Apart from Christ, we are condemned. We need the gates of the kingdom of heaven open to us. Who owns the keys? Jesus does. Revelation 1. He has the keys of death. He has the keys of Hades. Revelation 3. He is the key of David. He opens it. He shuts it. And he gave the keys to his church. We are stewards of them. We don't own them. The catechism rightly tells us these keys are the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. Church officers, elders, and pastors have a God-given duty to preach the word, to exercise church discipline in love, in patience, in grace, in shepherding, in gentleness, as those who will give an account to Christ. Wrongly exercising the keys is an abuse of authority that officers will be held accountable for. The keys are moral and spiritual, not civil, not temporal, meaning the church doesn't have a standing army saying we're gonna, we've got this army to protect the gates. No, it's the word of God. We exercise them ministerial, ministerially and decre, uh, declaratively. We don't bind your conscience apart from what the Word of God teaches. What does all this mean? It means the gospel goes forth every Lord's Day. That's the key that opens, meaning the gospel call goes. And God says, in Christ, I'm reconciling sinners to myself. Whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life as they trust him by faith and repentance. But the same key binds As the gospel call goes out, whoever rejects Christ will be put to shame for all eternity. Church discipline, the same thing. As an elder hears a profession of faith, that person is then welcomed into privileges of membership, the visible covenant community. But when someone lives in visible, scandalous, unrepentant sin, there is the patient process of church discipline. It's like cancer surgery. The disease must be removed before it sickens the body. The goal is to restore the offender, that sinners are deterred, that the spread of sin is checked, that Christ is honored to prevent God's wrath among the body. 1 Corinthians 5, Ananias and Sapphira. As this pastor tells us, When the keys of the preaching of the gospel and church discipline are rightly used, not when they're wrongly used, but when they're rightly used, heaven and earth are in agreement. There's concurrence. What's bound and loosed here is bound and loosed there. Meaning God is working in, with, and through these actions. Right now counts forever. Who do you say that Jesus is? Beloved, look to him by faith. 
Rest in his finished work. You have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And look forward to that day that that church Jesus purchased with his blood, a church that is suffering now, will be the church triumphant, will be made to be like the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Amen.